in this, he presents a scenario where aliens come down and uh, they offer us three things. They offer us money to buy us out of debt or gold, right? They offer us chemicals to clean up our environment and they offer us a clean form of energy and nuclear fusion that would solve all kinds of problems and they just come to the United States and they want all, they'll give us all those things in exchange for uh, every black person in the country and you know that creates social chaos. That was my guest on today's show, Dr. Isaiah Lavender III, an English professor at the University of Georgia who does research in Afrofuturism, science fiction, and fantasy. So I know you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with my overall well-being and mental health? Well, you'll have to listen and find out. We'll be right back. and you hosted by toby jenkins a licensed marriage and family therapist serving central kentucky each week toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health relationships or self-improvement the name of the show paradigm comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client an epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today... I am honored to have Dr. Isaiah Lavender III on the show, and we're going to talk about science fiction, Afrofuturism, and fantasy. So um, Isaiah Lavender is the Sterling Goodman Professor of English at the University of Georgia. He earned his uh, bachelor's degree in English from Southern University, where he graduated with honors. He went on to receive his master's in English from LSU and his PhD from the University of Iowa, and he spent... Uh, the next 15 years uh, being a professor at the University of Central Arkansas, at Louisiana State, and now at the University of Georgia. And Dr. Lavender specializes in African-American literature, race, ethnicity, and science fiction. Um, Dr. Lavender also has five books currently in print, Race in American Science Fiction, Black and Brown Planets, The Politics of Race and Science Fiction, Disorienting Disorienting Planets, Racial Representations of Asia and Science, Science Fiction, Afrofuturism Rising, The Literature, Literary Prehistory of a Movement, and Literary Afrofuturism in the 21st Century, uh, which is co-edited with, co with Lisa Yasek. His current projects include the forthcoming conversations with Nilo Hopkinson, the under-contract Rut Rutledge Handbook of Co-Futurism, and the in progress critical race theory in science fiction. Man, that's a pretty impressive resume, Dr. Lavender. Um, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, having a conversation about all things science fiction, fantasy, Afrofuturism, and wherever we go. So, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, I kind of read your bio and your resume. But, um, you know, the thing that really sticks out to me is that, um, you know, how did you get into this? And my, my, you know, my first thought is, I know you fairly well, actually. And I know you're, you're an avid reader, uh, love fantasy science fiction. But, you know, the big question is like, how do you, how did you pivot? Or how did you go from this is something I really like to do to this is something that could be my profession? That is uh, uh... A very good question with a very long answer in essence so uh, and it links to my earliest memory so my earliest memory is Star Wars right mm -hmm. a new hope as as we call it now episode four but when I was growing up in 1977 when this came out 
in May of 1977, I was three years old. I was going on, uh, and we went to the Grandview Drive-In to see this. I remember uh, falling asleep during the trash compactor scene, right? So I missed the epic <laughs> lightsaber duel between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. But I was there when Han Solo shot Greedo first, and I was thrilled by Greedo's green skin. But the, the memory is I, I woke up during... Uh, I woke up being carried into the house in a in a light mist, and that's that is my earliest memory. So green skin, thrill, and space, and laser beams, mm -hmm. and and I'm like just wow, that's kind of fun. But I you know I didn't think anything of of that. I just liked playing with Star Wars figures and all that kind of thing oh, yeah. growing up, right? Mm -hmm. But then uh, I had a moment in second grade where I was put into remedial reading or the slow class at that time, they might say. Mm -hmm. And my uh, second grade uh, teacher of reading, Mrs. Ennis, I, and I will praise her forever, recognized that I didn't belong there. And so that might have been a case oh, of microaggression because I was the only black boy in that school at that time in mm. uh Derby, New York, right? Mm -hmm. And so within six weeks, she had me out of there and into gifted and talented program. And I was reading, oh, she introduced me to Beverly Cleary and the mouse and the motorcycle, right? We oh, just gosh, made the yeah. sound, <laughs> boop, 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 and the, and the motorcycle would drive with Ralph. And, and you mm -hmm. know, he had to find a pill to help his, his friend out, uh, his human friend out. And so that was that but i also fell in love with choose your own adventure books and mm -hmm. endless quest books and uh the cave of time is the very first book in that medium and then uh Benicula and celery stalks at midnight and and these kinds of fantasy books that got me interested but then in between uh in third grade uh, you know my mom would take me to movies that i didn't necessarily should have seen when i was like six seven eight nine like blade runner yes. Yes. right mm -hmm. and you know we don't want to drop the m-bomb but you know they used to call a skin job was known as a ninja in this era right and the voiceover mm -hmm. that's been removed but that was with the original film the original ridley scott film and i remember thinking about that but not too heavily but anyway uh, later that year in a february winter in buffalo new york uh in the suburbs right uh I had a fast mouth, and I thought I had faster feet, but I was wrong. So uh, the pickup was at my house at the bottom of the court I lived in, right, in a curve that went up into the court, and I mouthed off to some fourth graders that morning and forgot about it. Fresh snowfall, end of the day, coming home, I get off at the top of the street, and I'm in blue moon boots, and I decide I'm going to race my bus home because I did that a lot. Okay. And, and it would stop all along the way. But in the snow, unshoveled driveways, unshoveled sidewalks, I did not win that race. And those fourth graders got off at the bottom of, uh, in the curve at the bottom of the court where, where was my house. And so they were waiting for me. Oh, they wow. circled me and they started dropping in bombs on me and kicking me and, and you know, I went in the house bloodied, battered. They might have killed me. You never know how kids get in that era. So a bunch of white boys jumped me in my front yard, basically. And the bus driver went around the court, came back, got off, and probably saved my life, right? Wow. Uh, and enthusiastic. And so uh, I, I went to the front door, went in, and, and had a conversation with my parents. And I remember asking, Mom, what does... What does the the n bomb mean and so mm -hmm. you know my parents went ballistic mm. and mm -hmm. went to the uh the pta and all that and short story uh long story short i had to ride at the front of the bus for the oh, rest of the year behind Joni, right and this is where mm -hmm. science fiction and fantasy come into my life so uh my parents found me uh my mom gave me the martian chronicles and I read it, and there's a story in there, uh, way in the middle of the air, June 2019. And it's uh, about all the blacks leaving uh, the country on rocket ships for 
uh, Mars, and one hmm. white guy tries to keep them all back, and and everyone gets together, gives him his money, and pay them, and, and but all the blacks leave for Mars, and he calls one of these younger guys that he tries to keep the M bomb again, and so mm -hmm. I think that's why my mom gave me that story, right? Wow. And so I I think about that, I write about it uh, quite a bit, and then uh, my bus driver Joni. Uh, introduced me to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien with The Hobbit. And so mm -hmm. I, I was introduced to Smeagol and Smog and Bilbo Baggins, and I loved it. And that really guided my reading throughout my childhood. But I was the type of kid that would read everything. I mean, everything. Yeah. Harlan romances that my mom read, spaghetti westerns that my dad read, like Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey. My favorite uh, Harlequin romance writers, bodice rippers, as they're known as, are probably Johanna Lindsay and Bertie Small, right? And so that educated me in ways that maybe I shouldn't have been educated. I would read my sister's Sweet Valley High stuff and oh, Babysitter's yeah. Club and... Uh, I would, you know, I go, we go to the library a lot and I have my own library card. Normally it was the Hamburg public library. And on special occasions, we would go to the big library in, in Buffalo itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, so I was always reading as a way of, I guess, coping in some kinds of ways. Cause you know, I, I had a smart mouth and I, it got me in trouble a lot. Right. And I, was in a lot of fights mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, I, I won some, but I lost a lot more. Right. And, yeah. and so in, in that respect, it, it really shaped me. And I have all kinds of memories uh, throughout my, I guess, formal education uh, with science fiction and fantasy as it relates to uh, the world. And, and so, you know, I, I think I had the best childhood in many ways and doing that kind of thing and, and experiences right along race moments in my life. So it just seemed obviously the, the way that I would would go. And I, I know I didn't I talked about early childhood and not uh, how it shaped me in terms of being a scholar, but I can get into that with an, another question. Oh, sure. I mean, the, you know, it's. Um... You know, there are a couple of things that I, I take away from that. One is that your parents were avid readers. Yes. Um, and that that plays a big role in it. And, um, you know, the Martian Chronicles, it, you know, we'll probably get into this, too, especially as we pivot and talk more about Afrofuturism. But, um, you know, books and the stories in those books can have a huge influence on how we interpret our reality, how we feel about ourselves. And, um you know, it's um, it's interesting when you said Martian Chronicles, the first person I thought about was Marcus Garvey, because there have been plenty of of movements throughout history of people of color, black people in particular, with Marcus Garvey uh, leaving the United States and settling, you know, in the, in the, the alliances that it also created. Um, but that book seems like it came around at the right time. Um, yeah. And uh it's that's interesting. Um, so we're up against our first commercial break. Today, my guest is Dr. Isaiah Lavender the third, and we are talking uh, Afrofuturism, science fiction, um, yeah, and a bunch of other good stuff. We'll be right back after the break. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com. Dot com or by calling 859-806-0093. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Isaiah Lavender III, who uh, studies Afrofuturism, science fiction, 
uh, race in science fiction and fantasy. And so, um, you know, we're basically talking about your origin story. Yes, <laughs> we are. You know, there are a couple of things that really stick out. Uh, one is that, you know, the process you went from, from being in remedial class and as a black boy, uh, were you second, third grade? And then yes, second grade. Second grade, six weeks, you end up in a gifted class because uh, one teacher saw that, nah, you don't really belong here and that, uh, hey, this kid is, is pretty smart. But, you know, you know, we're, we're going to get in kind of the role. Well, you have your first story about being bullied and protected and finding refuge in Martian Chronicles, right? Um, mm -hmm. It just kind of illustrates the whole power that books and literature and arts have. Um, but, um, so yeah, I think that's where we left off because there are some key books that have been in your life at very critical points. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of early on, but, uh, you know, how, how did you further cultivate this, uh, this, this joy of science fiction? And, um, you know, the other thing that also sticks out to me too, because we were around the same age, um, it sounds like you were maybe like the only black kid in a lot of your environments? Yes. My yeah. sister and I were half of the black population when she was a senior in high school and I was a, a junior, right? Half of the black population at our school in terms of black people. Now we were uh, in, I don't know what you call, we were on the edge of rural suburbia and, and close to the Seneca Nation Reservation mm. in, in New York. And so we mm -hmm. had a lot of, of uh, Native Americans, indigenous Americans uh, attend our school also. And I have a story about that in, in, in the future uh, you, as well. But you but, had a pivotal, you had a piv, another pivotal, ah, pivotal experience around sixth grade. Um, I did. Uh, yeah. Uh, tell us about that. Okay. So in sixth grade in New York at that time, they didn't have, they didn't have three divisions in school. They had four, right? And so I went from elementary school to intermediate school, fifth and sixth grade. But the, but the intermediate school bus stop was also with the middle school and high school bus stops. So different buses came at different times to go to different areas. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, there was a sixth grader in my class and some of his friends, you know, they're just, they, they listen to the older kids and this sixth graders older brother had the most creative curse that I was ever called at that point. And I was called a lot, but he mm -hmm. called me the walking, talking Tootsie roll. Okay. I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. And so his little brother and his, and their friends picked up on that and they taunted me with that in sixth grade a lot. Mm. Right. Uh, up mm -hmm. and down the hallways, on the bus, in secret furtive motions. I wasn't ha I wasn't required to ride on the front of the bus anymore at that point, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I took refuge in the school library in free moments, or I'd always get passes to go to the library when I finished homework. Mm -hmm. And my school librarian, uh, Mrs. Gone, took an interest in me, and so I was reading more science fiction like the Tom Swift novels for for. That would have been YA novels at that time, but I was probably a more advanced reader than that. I, and and so she gave me a book called Street Lethal, which was written by Stephen Barnes, one of his early novels, and it's about a, a, a black cyborg soldier. It's, it's cyberpunk, basically. Mm -hmm. But he is described with obsidian skin, okay? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's black. And you're like, right. oh, we've got a black author with a black... Uh, hero, why wouldn't I like that? But the cover was whitewashed, and so you had a, oh. a tanned white man on the cover in a, a martial arts pose and wavy brown hair. Doesn't even look close to a black guy. And so, Mrs. Gone, look at this description. Look at this cover. And we found we, there was a disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. So I was at the library a lot. And later that year, a new cover came out. And they had Aubrey Knight as a black dude in black shades. And you're just like, wow, this is cool. And so uh, I got the book that way. But I was in the library so much that year that she designed, and I'm, I'm, think, I'm the only person that ever won this award uh, in 1986, the most enthusiastic library 
Award winner. <laughs> and I came in, everyone was cheering for me when I came out and they announced that on the stage. Really? Black guy. And I was like, that just, that was just an amazing moment. And because I was reading science fiction and being introduced to black writers at that point by my librarian who took an interest in me because I was always there in the library reading. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't just reading science fiction, but I read a lot. Right. right. And right. so, uh, that was how I got around those bullies in that year by going to the library, mm -hmm. reading books, doing my homework. And, uh, you know, I was reading the note, the newspaper at that time too, and just reading lots of stuff in terms of doing homework. Right. Mm -hmm. Sixth grade was also, I think that was when they brought in, uh, computers, uh, in our school at that time. And so they're trying to do little coding thing. If you can recall, mm -hmm. like I think it was Commodore 64 or something like that at, at our school, it might've been something else, but that was the first time that, that I had access to computers in a public school. I had friends with a, a friend with an Apple two C and we played a lot of video games at his house. Sure. Right. Uh, and so that was, uh, that was, sixth grade and so that that was a, another pivotal moment i didn't know that i would be doing this i i was also reading comics at that point collecting baseball cards playing sports yeah. but like uh, i'd always read on car rides to uh soccer or baseball games or if we were going to watch the buffalo bills or or going to the sabers and driving into the city I would I would be reading and I had you know a reading light at that time and, wow. and all that kind of stuff. So you know it was it, it was formative. My parents supported my book habit. Like we would always go to the <laughs> McKinley Mall and you know books then were like two ninety nine a dollar ninety nine. I could yeah. buy three or four in a week right. and read them and and buy more. And so I had bookshelves in my in my room at this time. I don't know if a lot of literary scholars had experiences like this but that's that's kind of how i i got into books and i can say i had a, uh, you know uh flowers for algernon in seventh grade was a a, mm. a big book not in race terms but in terms of experimentation on human beings right mm -hmm. and then you know ninth grade uh was probably my worst ever year in english because well maybe not ninth grade uh, I could say uh, seventh grade and Mrs. Dahlman and not being able to do a sentence the way she wanted. And she knew I had uh, study hall after. So she kept me standing there for two class periods. I had a history test in the third period running. You will stay here until you complete the sentence. Right. And I, wow. you know, seventh grade, I was like, no, you're dumb. Right probably more colorful language and I got sure. in a lot of trouble and I had to write an apology letter and she wouldn't let me back in the class until final oh, exams. Wow. Really, it's like three months, but I yeah. passed that final. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was an office worker, so it was out of character for me. And, and I guess I embarrassed my parents, but then, uh, I, I don't guess I, I know. And then, but, but, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, coming to ninth grade, my mom had bone marrow cancer. They didn't tell mm. us. Mm. And in between 88 and 89, she goes in on Christmas Eve, 1988, and, and she's gone by February 1st, never came wow. home. But we thought she was getting better, but, but, you know, she died, and I didn't go back to school for wow. a month or so. So mm -hmm. homework is piling up. I get back. I had an English honors English teacher that did not understand. It's the only time I ever made a C in any English class that I can think of. Right. Uh, and I came across uh, Bradbury's The Illustrated Man, which had the follow-up to uh, Way in the Middle of the Air and the Marching Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And the, the I'm, why am I... Blank. I'm blanking on that title, but basically the whites blow themselves up and they come to Mars and they're being made to grovel by guys that remembered, by black people that remembered their uh, parents being lynched in various ways. And so 
And so uh, I, I saw the follow-up story, and I recovered for the last semester there, and that went on. And then my dad remarried during my junior year, and that was that was a bit of a mess, and that caused strife. And so again, reading, playing, or or my opiate at that time was video games. Mm-hmm. Before anyone recognized what it is, not video games like then. Yeah, right, but yeah, yeah. like stuff like Dragon Warrior, Metroid, Zelda, uh, replaying games that I had, and and you know that most of them had science fiction themes, and and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and then that you know you go off to college, uh, like I did headstand in my senior year of class. We did uh, honors English. Uh, change your perspective was the assignment, so I did a headstand on our desk. Right, we had a great project junior year where we had to do a newscast of uh, George Orwell's 1984 and a thought police following you and and you know just experiences like that were always with science fiction and so I'm always thankful of Mr. and Mrs. McDonald uh, in 11th and and 12th grade or junior and senior year for carrying on with science fiction in various ways and they they pay so teachers always have always played a vital pivotal role in uh, my interest in reading and then you get to college which uh by then uh, milestone media came into being the first black owned or multicultural science comic book line in the history so blood syndicate hardware static who's now static shock as as Mm. he's come back out in in various dc comics and Icon were the first four books, and I have them on my bookshelves. And I collected every one, and my aunt threw out all of them when she uh, retired from mm. Southern when I was there. And, and I had my stuff at her house. So that's another story. But, you know, you I have know, lots of. You know, of... it's interesting, though. Uh, you know, uh, as a therapist, you've talked about multiple traumatic experiences in books very very specific books have been there for yeah. you yeah. and have kind of helped you through working through those uh traumatic experiences uh and, and you know there's a whole line of whole model of therapy called narrative therapy which is very much related which uh it's uh, developed by michael white i think his name i think he's australian and i use this from time to time but it's just the power of actually from narrative therapy being able to change your own story and write your story and there's power in writing it and seeing it um that's pretty fascinating well we're up against another break actually we're up against one minute insight my guest today is dr isaiah lavender the third we're talking science fiction afrofuturism and fantasy today uh we will be right back after the break after one minute insight This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You, and this is One Minute Insight. You know, I've been talking the last couple of weeks about being in the sandwich generation, which is taking care of aging parents and children at the same time. There's a political aspect to this too, and I rarely wade into politics, but if this is something that affects you now or will affect you in the near future, you can do something about it by voting on it. And so there were two provisions in the last uh, Build Back Better bill that directly benefited families in this situation, um, which is there was an elder care provision in the original bill, which got cut out, which did two things. It it pumped more money into elder care, thus raising the uh, income of care providers. Then there's a child care provision, um, especially preschool. And so both of those things together, depending on your family situation, could have been a tremendous help. So a lot of things you have to do personally, but you can speak with your voice and with through politics to make a difference when you are in that situation or if you're in that situation now. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, 
create stress in our relationships, it can provoke serious anxiety and depression, and many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. And we are back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Isaiah, Dr. Isaiah Lavender III. Uh, he's an English professor at the University of Georgia, specializing in Afrofuturism, fantasy, science fiction, race and science fiction, um, author of uh, five books, two coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're, your backstory is, is fascinating and I, I think I may have mentioned this before we uh, you know, started the actual interview process that I interface in, in therapy with young people who are very passionate about writing, creating. I have a nephew who, who's a wonderful writer. He's just, he's in college and they can't quite make that link between, I like doing this um, and it's more than just kind of a hobby how do I do more with it? And I say, Hey, I have this friend uh, who, who's a professor and I've had, I've had other English professors on this show who are, are not are academics and creatives. You are more on the academic side of this. And the other thing I'll mention too, <laughs> I mean, you write, right? Yep. Yeah. And study it. And, but anyway, we'll get, we'll get more into that. Um, you know, one thing that really sticks out to me from your your origin story so far is um, I hated reading when I was a kid. When I was a kid, and I didn't begin to enjoy reading until I got to college. And I too went to an HBCU, and then just the whole environment in terms of uh, what what. The, the kind of curriculum that was presented to me was completely different. And that, that sparked my interest. And so what I realized, uh, especially after I got to college was that, um, kind of the whole thing we're going to get kind of in Afrofuturism is that I just couldn't relate and found the kind of literature curriculum through my like elementary school, junior high and beyond. I couldn't relate to it was mostly kind of a Eurocentric uh, reading the classics. I thought they're extremely boring and it was just drudgery reading it. Um, and probably the first big book that I read cover to cover was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cover to cover. Couldn't put it down. And that was kind of, I think I was in 12th grade and I was reading that outside of class. <laughs> um, and then I realized maybe I do like reading and perhaps the issue has been that um, I just wasn't interested in what I was reading. Um, and so I've become more of an avid reader since then. Um, and thank goodness for audiobooks, because yeah. <laughs> you can take them down quick uh, or, you know, easily while doing other things. But that's a, another topic. But, um, you know, um, how when did you figure out that you could do this as a profession and what that would be because not not everyone has a, not everyone is exposed to english professors and know that this is what english professors do uh, or can do um yeah how'd you figure that out right well i'm i'm i kind of went the opposite direction i always i've i've always lo loved reading well and I, I i've never lost that during the you know somewhere in the middle school years is when kids lose their interest in reading and mm -hmm. I, I hope my two boys don't lose their interest in reading i i've learned to buy whatever books they want to roll with even though what was classic to me they have no interest in so mm -hmm. i have to roll with zombie goldfish from you know and just like okay that's what they're interested in great the lego book okay that's great but in terms of when did i know well i didn't know an undergrad 
I was I was good at most subjects and I almost mm-hmm. majored in chemistry, right? Mm. But I got skipped ahead a few years in math when I went to the full nerd herd. Uh, I, I, for some reason, they didn't put me in math and you lose something fundamental. I used to love math, wanted to be an astronomer. That didn't work out. Wanted to be a medical doctor. That didn't work out. Uh, I liked the business classes that I was in in terms of micro and macro in, in college. That didn't work out. I always messed around with French and only applied myself during final exams. So uh, those are the only two C's I ever had in college were in French and mm-hmm. undergrad anyway. And that was that was basically my fault for not applying myself, right? Uh, but graduate school, uh, I was very much in, I was always reading science fiction fantasy on the side, but I was interested in more folkloric type things. And so I wanted to study the trickster in African-American literature, and I did my master's thesis on that. Uh, but my faculty thought I was too too much tunnel visioned on that subject and it was barring me from fully exploring what uh, English literary critical study could be, right? Mm -hmm. And so I took a class in 20th century ethnic American literature Mm. in 1999 and, uh, you know, it was fun. It was eye-opening. I'd read lots of African American, Asian American, Native American, Indian America from India type stuff mm-hmm. all all during this time you know expanded my reading right but uh, I was so centered on every paper I wrote was geared towards a trickster figure and that was that wasn't going to work in this class mm-hmm. and so I had to sit down with my major professor we want to see this and this you've got to break that mold because you're you're missing out on things and so what's the, in trickster, that, by, what's the trickster by the way the trickster is a, a folkloric being that pops up in most cultures that um, has a comic and tragic element that works its way into situations and works its way out of situations. Verbally or fighting, it does not always win. It has a fool or fool paradigm tied to it. And so like uh, a figure like uh, Br'er Rabbit would be a trickster. Mm-hmm. In African American uh, literature, mm-hmm. for example, or Anansi the spider mm-hmm. would be one from African uh, uh, folklore that that translated over to the Americas through the Middle Passage and the slave trade. Right, so that would be the the trickster figure. But I was too geared towards that and looking mm-hmm. at at uh, literary tricksters, particularly in Black women's writing. And, and then more and more, I looked at real live tricksters like Henry Louis Gates himself or mm-hmm. Nathan McCall and their experiences, a, a, a black journalist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that class, you know, we're reading all these books, great things. Uh, and then I saw The Matrix, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, all this that. stuff that I'm learning about, <laughs> this is amazing. And so I talked to that professor there can i write this essay on the matrix i can come up with an angle that that looks at uh racial ethnicity in in this film Mm -hmm. if we look at robots and artificial intelligence and cyborgs as being different racial groups and so that's Mm -hmm. where i came up with the idea of technologically derived ethnicities wow Uh, and so that that essay became my first published academic piece right from that class because i saw that film and a professor wanted to help break me out of and he was also married to my major professor Mm -hmm. so that helped me break out and after that uh there are three science fiction scholars at iowa at that time and they had a science fiction class on the books for graduate school but they hadn't taught it in years and so i got another graduate student along and we lobbied to have that class taught and so I only have one formal science fiction class in all my uh, history of of education, right? In terms of college, mm-hmm. and so it was it was uh, readings in twentieth century American science fiction, and we read like twenty novels, a bunch of short stories, and a bunch of criticism. So it was a a, a crash course in science fiction, and I I knew I was going to write on race, and so. 
I wrote a couple of book reviews at that time when where this is when uh, Dark Matter books came out by uh, Sharia R. Thomas. Dark Matter, uh, uh, a century of speculative fiction from the African diaspora, which was a mm -hmm. groundbreaking book at that time for this area. And, and so I wrote a book review on that. That was, I guess, reviews are more academic pieces. That came out before my Matrix essay. Uh, or they're very close in time to each other, right? And yeah. so I, I, I had the, the, the department chair at that time, Brooks Landon, uh, directed my dissertation, which was called Otherhoods. Mm. Uh, representations of race in science fiction but uh, when it finally got picked up as a book in 2011 at Indiana University Press they changed the title to race in American science fiction which it was properly slammed at least the title was slammed because mm -hmm. how can he be talking about American science fiction if he's talking about Arthur C. Clarke and he's talking about H.G. Uh, Wells and these big European, mostly British, science fiction writers. Yeah. Well, the book was mistitled by the print, and I could take right. that criticism by the by the press. I could take that criticism on the on the head, and so that was an important moment. And I also went to uh, the Afrofuturism seminar at Stanford that year because my dissertation director was the chair of the department, and he had some funds. And my other professors mentioned this conference to me, and I said, hey, Brooks, they're doing this Afrofuturism seminar at Stanford. And he flew me out there right before I defended my dissertation, and it was fantastic. That's when I knew I could do it because... Well, you're getting stuff published. And right. Stuff is being published. And... I also do, you know, I do 20th century... African-American literature in general, but most African-American literary specialists extend all the way back to, uh, let's say, Phyllis Wheatley and, and move forward. Mm -hmm. You can't read everyone, but you have to read the classics. You have to read slave narratives and see how uh, they are echoed into the future and see paradigms like the tragic mulatto and how that echoes into the future mm -hmm. and recognize that blacks have been living a science fictional existence since they came into uh, or were brought into mm. uh, the new world, basically. Yeah. And that's that's where Afrofuturism has its start. I didn't agree with Afrofuturism when it first came out, mm -hmm. but I was convinced uh, otherwise later. And, and, you know, I thought I could come up with a better term. I thought otherhoods was a better term. I thought it was better because it was more inclusive of different people of color, which is right. something that I take on a little bit, though my book is about uh, the black and white racial binary, my first book. And so, but that is the hubris of a young 28, 29, 30 year old scholar. Yeah, I can do better. Without yeah, knowing. You know, you, you said a term that um, I'm sure most people don't think about. You said science fiction scholar. Um, but, you know, you, you are starting to connect the dots. And I'm sure we'll get way more into, like, why this is important. Um, because, you know, art, well, we'll get into it. But, you know, art is extremely important. And the things that we imagine in art um, have a way of not only reflecting what's in reality, but sometimes it's a precursor for, for, for what's to come or what can come. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that and jump into like Afrofuturism in particular after the break. Uh, you listen to the Paradigm, Insight Center Relationships and you. Uh, we'll be right back. You've got mail. You've got mail. All right. Today's listener mail comes from, actually there's no name. So here's listener mail. My fiance and I have started premarital counseling several months ago, and it has only made things worse to the point that I'm questioning whether I should get married. Our wedding is scheduled for nine months from now. Our therapist says this is normal. Is it really normal? I've asked our therapist if they thought we should cancel our wedding or delay our wedding, but she won't give a direct answer. We're not sure what to do. So, Dr. Lavender, how would you counsel this uh, listener? 
Well, you know, uh, this is not my area, Toby, but I would always say open lines of communication are are so important to marriage and being able to talk through things. Uh, and so I would ask them to really explore their feelings once uh one off by themselves thinking about stuff and then two together and then three you've engaged a counselor you should uh make use of that research because love is is not enough for for a marriage because it's a a partnership right Mm -hmm. so i've been uh with my wife since 1996 though we didn't get married until 2000 right and so you know i i think that's some some good knowledge there you know almost 22 years of marriage being together 26 years for half my life and you know going through the peaks and valleys of any relationship some of this could be marital jitters because you're getting ready to commit your life to one person and you want it to last this is a major lifetime decision it's like buying a house really right which is a oh, yeah. major financial <laughs> commitment and the foundation needs to be solid and strong and so i hope it's just jitters but uh hopefully you two can talk through this and get through this and recognize the the things that are are wonderful about your partner that can supersede whatever these nerves are if they are in fact nerves mm-hmm. right but you have to you have to find that out right but you know that's the advice that i that i can give no, i don't good. know if it's any good but no, good. <laughs> you know, the only, only thing i would add to well, i'll add a couple things to it is that um it is true that uh when you enter into therapy therapy and therapeutic work, um, especially with someone else, you know, we call it relational work, whether it's couples or families, um, more than likely it's going to get worse before it gets better because we go through a process of trying new behaviors and kind of correcting old patterns and behaviors. And that takes some time to work through. And so I'm hoping that's the process they're in. And I thought you brought up a real good point in terms of like, this is a partnership and a long-term partnership that you're getting into. And there are going to be ups and downs. um, And hopefully what you're getting out of this premarital counseling are tools to reconnect. So when there are these issues that come up, you are learning how to not fight because there's a winner and a loser when we fight, but how to reconnect, get closer and learn how to uh, learn new skills. The kind of third part is that um, I try to resist. I mean, therapy therapists and counselors are not there to tell you what to do. They're supposed they you know they're helping you get skills. So it's your counselor is probably not going to tell you what to do, um, and nor should you want your counselor to tell you what to do. So, so uh, good luck uh, with your wedding planning and with the premarital counseling. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. And we're back. You're listening to Paradigm, insights into relationships and you. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Dr. Isaiah Lavender III. Um, He's a science fiction scholar specializing in race and science fiction, fantasy and beyond. So, um, you know, um, you know, the, the, the topic of today's uh, uh, talk is about Afrofuturism. So let, let's start with like, what is it? How do we de- how is it defined? OK, well, this uh, this is it's not controversial to me. It, it's 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 ancient history, right? Well, not too ancient, but the term has been around almost 30 years now. And it, mm-hmm. it comes down to a set of interviews in the South Atlantic Quarterly in 1993 uh, that Mark Derry has with uh, three uh, black culture critics. One is an author and uh, a scholar in his own right, Samuel R. Delaney, who is is a big figure in African-American science fiction. Uh, next is was cultural critic Greg Tate 
and the the third was uh, a, a music theorist and African-American studies person uh, uh, by the name of Tricia Rose. And they're all big figures at this mm -hmm. point in 2022. And so Mark Derry is a white cultural critic at that time. And in this set of interviews, he comes up, he has a framing essay. It's a thousand, two thousand words where he identifies uh, uh, images of the future uh, where blacks make creative use of techno culture uh, mm. and cybernetic or, or uh, I'm sorry I'm fudging the original definition but no. uh, it's basically <laughs> black techno cultural use and cybernetic limbs for lack of a better expression could be described as afrofuturism Mm -hmm. And and the way he writes it up, he sounds like he's conquering new territory, as in a colonial theme, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, people have taken issue with that. Black people have taken issue with that in some ways. But I give Derek uh, all the credit for coining this important term, though I honor Delaney, Tate, and Rose for doing the heavy theorizing in the set of interviews that he has mm -hmm. because... Derry uses a great science fiction writer, uh, William Gibson, in his novel Neuromancer, identifies that as Afrofuturism because of the space Rastas that exist for maybe three pages of the total in this book. And he mm -hmm. runs with this theme, right? And it, and it, and that rubs people the wrong way. Some people the wrong way, depending on what definition of Afrofuturism you use and right. so you can see that in the set of interviews they're 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 a little bit snarky you can read between the lines that oh they're having a dig at dairy mm -hmm. or not right if you yeah. want to if you take it at face value and so within that i think greg tate has uh, uh well first delaney says our people need images of the future and more than most right because yeah. we're living through the social detritus and of of an impact of slavery where our history uh, has been erased coming to this new world. Later right. you have uh, Gregory Tate saying black people live uh, a science fictional existence and then uh, Trisha Rose follows that up with how important music has been and mm -hmm. creates a cultural connection going back to the African continent. So mm -hmm. brilliant theorists uh, fleshing out what Afrofuturism could be. Some people date it to 1994 when this suite of interviews comes out in uh, Derry's uh, book Flame Wars, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but they're, they're wrong because it comes out in 1993 first and that always irks me as a literary scholar when the dates get wrong and and it still happens right and that right. that's fine so that's that's uh uh my saying people take issue with that because they do but you know greg tate sets it up black people are are living a science fictional existence he's not wrong he goes uh, you know you can go back blacks were taken by an alien race on alien ships to an alien location where they were forced to speak alien languages and eat alien foods and learn alien social customs where they were identified as objects, right? Where they are positioned as aliens. And that is a, a, a hellified way of describing uh, slavery and the Middle Passage and how blacks come to be here. Yeah. You know, the, the term, um, you know, the term was coined or kind of the parameters of it were coined in the 90s. But uh, the concept goes way back. Um, yeah. Like you were like, even if you like going back to like the pivotal science fiction you were reading that that had racial tones in it. Was it uh, the um, Martian Chronicles? I mean, that was pre obviously pre 1993, 1994. Right, and, 1950. Um, yeah, and so so there have been these aspects in science fiction, um, but you know, one take on it I've heard and I agree with is that in mainstream science fiction and fantasy, 
um, it's usually written from a from a white gaze, so to speak. Um, and I always think about, you know, lo I love Star Wars, love Star Trek. Uh, I, I can't remember which comedian uh, coined this joke, but uh, it was a joke, but it was very serious. And basically the point was, in any science fiction or movie, uh, there's Yeoman Jenkins. Um, that's usually, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the, it's the black character. He's going to die in the first five minutes. Right. And that was kind of the case. Like one of my favorite, uh, shows growing up was uh, star Trek and any time my yeah. brother and I would watch it. And within the first <laughs> oh, five minutes, there we go. <laughs> watch out. They're going on the away mission. Uh Oh, <laughs> yeah. All, all, oh, the brother went, Yeoman Jenkins went down. <laughs> you know, within the first five minutes. And so, you know, we've been focusing a lot on books, um, comics, um, Marvel, uh, comic heroes, but, um, you know, it goes into like music. Um, some of the ones that come to mind to me, I think one of the ones that really made it mainstream uh, was uh, uh, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. Right. I mean, they were talking about the mothership space stuff way back in the 70s. And then that you often hear them sampled in modern day hip hop or rap. And um, the other group that I could not stop listening to them when I was maybe in high school was Nucleus. Their whole album was about space, space travel, being aliens, um, artists like Khalees. She had a whole album about basically like this alternative uh, alien living and then various outcasts the whole atlians um, right and then probably uh you you're probably a better uh critic of movie movies but you know for me i would say black panther was probably the biggest you know uh instance of a black hero in a mainstream story and it goes yeah that, that takes afrofuturism mainstream right and so yeah. uh I have no shame in admitting that uh, probably music and Afrofuturism would be my my weakest area, but I'm I'm aware of things that that go on in terms of that. But uh, there is a significant strand of Afrofuturist study that goes on in the music uh, scene. So uh, a journal like Dance Cult has lots of theorizing of of Afrofuturism and music, and so you look at groups like Flying Lotus, Clipping. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sun Ra, Earth, Wind, and mm -hmm. Fire as well, Outcast, oh, yeah. as you mentioned, George Clinton, Parliament, Funkadelic, uh, Herbie Hancock could be involved with his electronic oh, yeah. type oh, of stuff. stuff. And, yeah. and moving forward, all of hip-hop is part of that in terms of how they are using an older technology and and. And there's a quote where from William Gibson, the street finds its own uses for things. Mm -hmm. And we're meaning black people <laughs> in that sense have innovated technologies. And so uh, my wife and I and other other black people will call it uh, Afro engineering to be more PC. Right. Right. And so mm -hmm. but that has been a part of black culture forever. And you can take that back further if you want to look at quilting, for example. Yes. And looking mm -hmm. at signals for the Underground Railroad that were being used with various quilt patterns and designs being laid out at right. night on if the railroad was operational or not, right? You can look at coded messages in uh, spirituals and slave songs. And this mm -hmm. is this is this is a, a a deep thing using the technologies available uh, to help people escape from the institution of slavery or even bear the institution of slavery. Music right. is a, a big part of that. Well, you know, we're <laughs> up against a, up against a break, and I think we're we know we're connecting the dots between it's more than art. It's more than stuff people create there's a direct connection to our overall humanity and i think that's the cool part to it but uh, you know we'll jump more into that when we come back uh, you're listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you i'm toby jenkins my guest today is dr isaiah lavin iii and we're talking afrofuturism science fiction and fantasy today uh, we'll be right back hey join us next week for part two of my interview with dr isaiah lavin iii we'll see you then
relationship therapy or personal growth question you would like answered on the air, email me at toby at paradigmradioshow.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You is brought to you by Jenkins Professional Services and Hype Media Global. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You with Toby Jenkins. Join us again 